So as I mentioned, tonight we begin a new series. This will be our summer series in the book of Colossians. And we've entitled this series, Walk in Christ. The title comes from Colossians 2.6. So if you can, turn there briefly. It comes from Colossians 2.6, where Paul says this, Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him. Arguably, the main point of the book is right there in those 12 words. As you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. And I'll leave the details of that text for when we actually come to the text in the series. That'll be someone else preaching. But I do want to point out two things here by way of introduction to the series itself and to the book. First, Note that it begins with the word, therefore, there in verse 6 of chapter 2. And it's often quipped that whenever you see a therefore, you should look to what came before and see what it's there for, right? That's a good rule. That's a good rule of interpretation. And if we do so, what we see is primarily the unrivaled supremacy of Jesus Christ in his person and work, along with the Colossians' response to him in faith and Paul's ministry of proclaiming him. So that's what we would see, all of chapter 1 and beginning of chapter 2, that's what we would see that leads to this all-important therefore in chapter 2, verse 6. In fact, Paul summarizes all of that for us in this very verse. In the words, as you received Christ Jesus, the Lord. That, in a nutshell, is what has come before. Christ Jesus is the Lord. He is the Lord of creation. He is the Lord of redemption. Indeed, he is the Lord of all things. It's the driving refrain of so much of chapter 1. And the fact that the Colossians have received him. They have entrusted themselves to him. So that's the first thing to note. The second thing to note from this verse is the comparison. As you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so now walk in him. You see the comparison? As you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so now walk in in him. In other words, Paul exhorts the Colossians to walk in Christ in the present, that is to go on living their Christian life in the present, in the same way they initially received him in the past. Strange way to talk. Or is it? In this sense, we do not move beyond where we began. There are other senses in which we should. We should grow in maturity, right? But in this sense, we do not move beyond where we began, hearing the gospel, believing the gospel, and entrusting ourselves to the God of the gospel. As one scholar puts it, he says, since the Colossians had begun the Christian life by submitting to Christ Jesus as Lord, they were now to go on living under that lordship as those incorporated into him. The gospel, 
in other words, is not only the ABCs of the Christian life, where we begin, but it is also the A to Z of the Christian life. Or, to use a medical analogy I heard recently from Pastor Kurt Miller, it is both heart transplant and dialysis. It begins new life, the heart transplant does, and it also sustains life, like dialysis does. Therefore, we do not move beyond the gospel to bigger and better things. Indeed, as this letter will go on to make plain, we dare not. That's going to be Paul's argument in the letter. So, Everything in Colossians will be, in one way or another, the unpacking, the clarifying, the illustrating, the elaborating of Colossians 2.6. And in our title for the series, we've emphasized the second half, walk in Christ. But in order to do that, we'll also be unpacking what it means to receive Christ Jesus the Lord. And we're excited this summer to be walking, no pun intended, through this book together. And so let's begin. Our text for tonight is chapter 1, verses 1 to 14. So please turn there in your Bible and follow along as I read if you're not already there. Colossians 1, verses 1 to 14. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, of this you have heard before in the word of the truth, the gospel, which has come to you, as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing, as it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant. He is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. And so, from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, May you be strengthened with all power, according to his glorious might, for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father, who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Amen. This is God's word. But now, why did Paul write this letter in the first place? Well, we know from chapter 2, verse 1, that Paul did not plant the church in Colossae. There he says that he wants them to know how great a struggle he has for them and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face. Which means Paul didn't plant the church in Colossae. They didn't know Paul personally. We also know that he's writing from prison. In chapter 4, verse 3, and verse 18, he makes it clear that he's in prison, probably 
in Rome. And that while in prison, he hears this report concerning the church in Colossae from Epaphras, whom we will hear more about shortly. And the report was quite positive. And Paul erupts in thanksgiving for what God has done among the Colossians. But even though the report was positive, it's also clear that Paul had some strong concerns regarding some false teaching that had infiltrated the church to some degree. There's debate at to what degree, and there's debate at the specific kinds of the false teaching that was going on, and we'll get into some of that. But Paul's got some concerns, and that becomes clear as we read through the rest of the letter. And scholars often refer to this false teaching by the phrase, the Colossian heresy. It is hard to pin down exactly, but as we read through the letter, as we go through the summer, some of the main contours of it will become clear. And so Paul is writing then to a church he did not personally know in order to encourage and fortify them against unorthodox teaching and pagan ways of thinking and living. So that's why Paul is writing. And the letter then provides what we might call the truly Christian vision of life, rooted in the preeminence of Christ and the foundation of the gospel. By not shifting from this, he argues, they will persevere. And in the same way, we need to be encouraged by the gospel and fortified against the winds of false teaching blowing in our own day. Just for example, a few things. The prosperity gospel or the social gospel or a self-realization, self-fulfillment kind of gospel or salvation by works or cheap grace. Let us sin so that grace may abound. So all those are varieties of false teaching that are pretty current in our own day. And so we need this word from Colossians. It stands as a strong and powerful antidote to such false teaching, and we would do well to pay close attention. Well, let's get a few more details in place to help us get a a sense of the the whole here a little bit more before we actually dive into these verses here in this first section. As we see from verse 1, Paul identifies himself as the author. Paul, verse 1, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. This is the former persecutor of Christians, now turned proclaimer of Christ. The former adversary, now turned apostle. And this was by the will of God. Not ultimately by his own choice, but by God's gracious and inscrutable purpose. See, Paul understands his own life as being swept up into the drama of God's larger purposes in the world something he refers to elsewhere as the counsel of his will. That comes from Ephesians 1.11. Paul not only is an apostle by God's will, 
but included within that and implied within it is that he is a Christian by God's will. When he was a persecutor of Christians, he was not. And when the risen Jesus met him on the road to Damascus, and his eyes saw him, he was. So by God's will, he was a Christian and an apostle. And it's that Christian piece that I think is applicable to us as well. You see, James 1.18 says, Of his own will, referring to God, he brought us forth by the word of truth. If you're here and you're a Christian tonight, it was ultimately by God's will. That's the meaning of grace. For all of us in this room, as well as for all who embrace Jesus as our Savior, Lord, and greatest treasure, such salvation is rooted in God's will. And so we praise Him for it. So we've identified Paul as the author. Who's next? Well, he lists in verse 1, Timothy, our brother. Since this is the only time in the letter that he mentions Timothy, it's likely that Timothy is with Paul and sends greetings to the church kind of along with Paul, and that's probably it. That's probably all we're to infer from the mention of Timothy here. Although it is possible, though not certain, some think this, that Timothy is the one who actually penned the letter. So Timothy, in that sense, would be Paul's, and big word here, I'll explain it, amanuensis. Fancy word for recorder or secretary. And this was common in the ancient world. And we know Paul utilized such a person because he actually identifies Tertius in the letter to the Romans as such a person. So that's not out of the realm of possibility. We just don't know for sure. He doesn't explicitly say that, but it's possible. If you look at the end of Colossians, chapter 4, verse 18, watch how Paul ends. He says, I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. Is it possible that right there he inserts his own handwriting and that he means Timothy was the one who wrote the rest at his dictation? Maybe. Maybe that's why he includes Timothy here, but we can't be certain. At the very least, we think Timothy is with Paul and sending his greetings along with him. But more important is what he calls Timothy. He is their brother. You see, relationships in the body of Christ, the church, are often described in the New Testament in familial terms. In Christ, we are all brothers and sisters in the household of God, with Jesus himself as our elder brother, we might say, or the firstborn, to use some of Paul's language from elsewhere. So we're all brothers and sisters, and here he identifies Timothy as a brother. And now look in verse 2. Who is it that Paul is writing to? Who are these folks? They're writing to the Christians in Colossae, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae. Grace to you and peace from God our Father. Here's this familial language again. But in addition to the familial language, we also have the label saints. 
He's identified them as saints. Not the exalted status granted only to a certain few within some Christian traditions, but the exalted status that's granted to all Christians. It designates them as the true people of God. And it reminds them that they are set apart as such. I wonder, when was the last time you thought of yourself, Christian, Christian in Christ, when was the last time you thought of yourself as a saint? That's here how Paul addresses you. To the saints. At Colossae, I could say, to the saints at College Church. It's a high privilege and a high calling. This particular group of Christians, they lived in Colossae, an ancient city in the Lycus Valley, near two larger cities at the time. Familiar to us from other portions of Scripture, Laodicea and Hierapolis. It was also about 100 miles due east of Ephesus, which is part of modern-day Turkey. But important for our purposes is that at the time of Paul, Colossae was a cosmopolitan city in which differing cultural and religious elements mingled, including a sizable Jewish population. And it's this information that helps us a little at least explain some of the challenges related to pinning down the false teaching that comes up later in the letter, because it seems that the false teaching uh, has elements of it that are combined from lots of different places. And so it makes sense that if it's flowing out of this cosmopolitan, I'm not sure what the adjective is for that, we'll just say rich, diverse area, it makes sense that there would be different sources of religious thought that could be mingled together as part of this false teaching. Well, in any case, there's only one more important person to identify for now. We're just putting all the pieces in place so that as we go through the rest of the book, we have a sense of the whole of the historical situation here. And that important person is Epaphras. We learn from verses 7 and 8 that Epaphras, a native of Colossae, was the one who taught the Colossians the gospel, who continued serving them, and who gave Paul the report concerning them, especially making known to Paul their love in the Spirit. Look at verses 7 and 8 of chapter 1. Paul says, Just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant. He is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. So here he signals out Epaphras. He holds him up as an example of a faithful servant of Christ and at the same time, in so doing, is commending his leadership for the church in Colossae. Okay, so you might be sitting there thinking, wow, that's, that's a lot of historical information. What is the point of all that? What's the takeaway from all this historical information? I'll mention two. There are probably more, but I'll mention two. First, it reminds us of the relational, the intimate, the familial, indeed the affectional 
nature of the early church. And second, it reminds us that, among other things, Paul was a pastor. These things can sometimes get lost in our quest for the beliefs of the early church. What did they believe? What was their theology? And the quest for Paul, the theologian, writing deep thoughts from his ivory academic tower, or so we might be inclined to think. But neither of those is is quite correct. What the early church believed is, in fact, crucial, and we will get into a lot of that in this book. Paul was a brilliant theologian. His writings are worthy of extended meditation, and we'll also be doing that by taking an entire summer to go through a letter that can be read in its entirety in 15 to 20 minutes. And we're going to take a summer to linger and to meditate on it. But, here's my point, the, the theology that comes, and it is wonderful, and high, and profound, and life-changing, all of that, yes, the theology that comes in this letter comes in the context of a letter. That means it comes in the context of the family of God, the church, the people. Paul is a pastor who cares deeply for these people. Epaphras cared deeply for these people. They were a community. And we must not lose sight of this, for this is what we are as well. We're not just talking heads, transferring information to one another. At least I hope that's not all we are. Rather, we are a people who care for one another, who pray for one another, and who bear one another's burdens. But in any case, that's the situation of the letter. That's the historical situation of the letter. So now we can take a closer look at these opening verses, verses 3 to 14. So after his greeting in verses 1 and 2, which ends with the characteristic, but by no means throwaway phrase, grace to you and peace from God the Father, Paul begins by essentially revealing his prayer life. An interesting move. (laughs) He begins by revealing his prayer life, the things he prays for when he thinks of the Colossians. He specifies two things, thanksgiving and supplication or petition. You can see this by observing verse 3 and verse 9 together. So look at verse 3. He says, We always thank God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. So, when the Colossians come to Paul's mind, he prays. And one of the first things he does for for them is he thanks God for them. Thanksgiving is a part of his prayer. But now notice also verse 9. And so, from the day we heard, that is, heard the report from Epaphras, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that... In other words, when Paul remembers the Colossians, he prays by thanking God for them. That's verses 3 to 8. And he prays by asking specific things for them. That's verses 9 to 14. So we got thanksgiving in verses 3 to 8, and we got petition in verses 9 to 14. And we'll take them one at a time. So what is Paul thankful for? It's primarily two things. 
You can see them in verses 4 and 8. So first, he thanks God for the Colossians' faith in Christ Jesus. You can see that in verse 4. Since we heard, or because we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus. Because we heard of your faith, we give thanks to God. So Paul thanks God for their faith in Christ Jesus. Now the gospel, which if you look carefully here, is described in a number of ways. The gospel, also described as the word of the truth, that's verse 5, and the grace of God in truth, that's verse 6. Here's the situation. The gospel came to them through the faithful ministry of Epaphras. Now watch this. Paul says they heard it, verse 6. Since the day you heard it. He also says they learned it, verse 7. I'm going out of order here intentionally from the way they're listed in the text. I'll explain that in a second. So the first day, the gospel comes to them through Epaphras, and then they hear it. They learn it in verse 7. Then they understood it, back in verse 6, and they believed it, verse 4, faith in Christ Jesus. Note the progression from hearing, learning, understanding, believing. That is what is required. A faithful telling, which includes teaching and exposition, which leads to hearing and understanding, and finally, believing. There are no shortcuts. Faith comes by hearing, Paul says in Romans 10. And so, here at the beginning, Paul thanks God that such telling, such hearing, such learning, such understanding has given way by God's Spirit to genuine faith in Christ. It's the first thing he thanks God for. What's the second thing? Well, look back in verse 4. We thank God. God, verse 4, because we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus, and second thing, of the love that you have for all the saints. Or you can look down in verse 8 and see him say it another way, he's made known to us your love in the Spirit. Verse 8, adding the words in the Spirit, I think is a way of Paul clarifying that such love, such miraculous caring for one another is ultimately attributable to the work of God's Spirit among them. It's not something that they just kind of generate out of their own willpower. It's something that's owing to the work of God's Spirit. And Paul will flesh out the nature of this love later in chapter 3, but I'll just summarize it here as Service, the, the practical coming to the aid of one another with care and help. This love, this practical service to one another, then knits them together in such a powerful way. So the Colossians have expressed faith in Christ, and this faith is changing them such that they are becoming a truly loving people. Loving all the saints, and that's what Paul is giving thanks for. 
Brothers and sisters, to the degree that we see faith in Christ and love for one another expressed here at College Church and elsewhere, our hearts should soar with thankfulness and praise to God. Paul here is a great model. Well, as we said, Paul not only thanks God, but he petitions him on behalf of the Colossians. So now let's take a look at verses 9 to 14. This is Paul's petition. In verses 9 and 10, we see the specific request. Notice with me. Verse 9, And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him. And then he continues. That's his prayer, that they would be further filled with the knowledge of God's will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, even though he's already said they learned and understood the grace of God in truth. So they have learned something, they've understood something, and Paul is now praying that they would grow in their knowledge of something else. Or is it all one and the same and just deeper grasp and understandings of what they have learned and understood already? What does this mean? That they would be filled with the knowledge of God's will? Well, here's my attempt. And you, you test this and hold fast if it is good. I think the words here, in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, qualify the knowledge of God's will so that God's will here does not mean, uh, is it God's will for me to take this or that job? Or is it God's will to marry this or that person? I don't think that's what, what Paul means here. I think he means rather that this is the knowledge of God's will for your Christian life. That is, Christian living that's characterized by a true spiritual wisdom and understanding of who God is in Christ. Let me explain. I think we see this in verse 10 with the repetition of increasing in the knowledge of God. So look, look carefully at that. Verse 10, So as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to Him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. Now join that up with what he prayed in verse 9. That they might be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. So we've got a prayer for being filled with the knowledge of his will in verse 9. And we've got this increasing in the knowledge of God in verse 10. So I think that's a clue. And then I also think chapter 2 verse 3 is another clue. There Paul says that all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are found in Christ. So, here's, here's what I think he's saying. He's praying that they would be filled with the knowledge of God's will. That is, that they would grow in their knowledge of who God is in Christ such that we become more and more like him. Hence, the purpose of such filling in verse 10, that is, to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him. That's what I think he's getting after there with his prayer for them. 
There are many things we should be praying for in the Christian life. Many things. However, if we examine our prayer life and find that we are not praying like Paul here, something is probably off. We should be praying this prayer every day for ourselves and for one another. That we would all continually be filled with the knowledge of God, the knowledge of His will, so that we would walk, live in a manner worthy of Him. That should be a kind of big, overarching prayer for our lives. But you might ask, what does a life look like if this prayer is being answered? What's it actually look like, concretely? And actually, Paul goes on to describe it with four characteristics in verses 10 to 12. He names them. One, bearing fruit in every good work. Two, increasing in the knowledge of God. Three, being strengthened with all power according to His glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy. And four, giving thanks to the Father. So many of you may be familiar with the Nine Marks of a Healthy Church series of books. Similarly, we might say that Paul here gives us four marks of a healthy Christian. This list is summative. It's a a summarization kind of list. It's not exhaustive. So there would be other things that he would say elsewhere, and the New Testament would also say. But here we have a summary list of the marks of a healthy Christian. And these will all come up again later in the letter. That's one of the things that openings in letters do. They kind of signal the main trajectory for what's to come later in the body of the letter. And so it's no surprise that we find some of these same themes and concepts showing up later in the letter. So I'll leave some of that for for other people. Don't want to step on everybody's toes. But I do want to just point out a couple things. First, notice how the gospel bears fruit and increases in verse 6. There Paul says, as indeed in the whole world, it, that is the gospel, is bearing fruit and increasing. Notice two of these marks, bearing fruit and increasing. That's intentional. We bear fruit in every good work. That is our practical life of good deeds flowing out of our acceptance with God by faith. Such a life yields good fruit. As Christians saved by grace, we should be abundant in good works. And we should be increasing in our knowledge of God. The gospel bears fruit and increases. And Christians, people whom the message of the gospel creates, are also Bearing fruit and increasing. That's the logic. Second thing to notice. Look at the fourth mark. Giving thanks to the Father in verse 12. That's actually modeled for us by Paul. He's doing that in verses 3 to 8. He is showing us what it looks like to give thanks to God. To be full of gratitude. Thanksgiving rather than grumbling is one of the marks of a healthy Christian. And then finally, Christians are those who are strengthened ultimately by God's power and endure patiently, not in our own strength, but His. Four 
marks of a healthy Christian. And that's Paul's petition to God on behalf of the Colossians. That's Paul's prayer for us. That should be our prayer for one another. That our lives would be increasingly marked by such marks. This is the kind of life that pleases God. And now, just to to close, I want us to see something profound about this opening section. Namely, how the gospel grounds both Paul's thanksgiving and his petition. You may have been sitting there thinking, okay, 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 there's a couple of verses here you didn't touch on. There's a couple of verses here you left out. What about those? How do those fit? Well, here's how I think they fit. First, look again at verses 3 and 4. Paul says, We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since or because we heard of your faith in Christ and of the love you have for all the saints. Watch this in verse 5. Because, again, of the hope that is laid up for you in heaven. And of this you have heard before in the word of the truth, the gospel. What does this mean? It means that the message of the gospel, which carries with it a message of profound hope, is the grounds for the faith and the love, which is the grounds for Paul's thanksgiving. Paul is thanking God because of what has happened among the Colossians, which is ultimately rooted in the gospel. This gospel is powerful. He describes this gospel as itself bearing fruit and increasing all across the world. And he describes it also as bearing fruit and increasing among them. And this is the reason why the grounds for Paul's thanksgiving. The gospel grounds thanksgiving. It's the grace of God in truth that's at the bottom, if you will. And it also grounds Paul's petition. Look at verse 9. So he's just articulated and described a little bit the gospel through verse 8. And then in verse 9, you have the words, and so. Or more literally, this would be rendered for this reason or on account of this. Or you could even say, therefore. Which means what just came before in verses 3 to 8 becomes the ground for his petition. So the gospel is not only the grounds for Paul's thanksgiving, it's also the grounds for his petition, what he prays for them. And this gospel has a sharp point to it, the tip of the spear, if you will. And that's found in verses 12 to 14. So look there. What is the the heart or the tip of the spear of this gospel? It's that he has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the dominion of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. That's 
the gospel Epaphras taught. That's the gospel the Colossians heard and learned and understood and believed. And it is power. As Paul would say elsewhere, it is the power of God unto salvation for all who believe. For all. For the Jew and the Greek. For all who would embrace Him. This gospel that delivers us from sin, that delivers us from the domain of darkness, the deadness of our condition in Adam, and transfers us into the kingdom of His beloved Son, a kingdom characterized by joy and peace, forgiveness, love, holding out a great hope of eternal life an eternal life of joy, a new creation, completely rid of death and pain and sorrow and tears. That's all held out for you in the gospel. That's the gospel Paul proclaimed. It's the gospel Epaphras taught. It's the gospel we preach here at College Church. It's the gospel that changes us. And so if you're here tonight and and you have never embraced Jesus, the God of the gospel. You don't know this experience of the forgiveness of sins. You don't know the joy of being transferred out of just a life in sin and a life under the power of sin to a life of joy in the kingdom of God. I invite you to embrace him tonight. And if you have questions about this, you say, Pastor, redemption, what is that? I help me understand. Please come up to me afterwards and and talk with me. I'd be happy to do so and to pray with you. So for us, College Church, we ground ourselves in the gospel. We pray that as we have understood the gospel, we go on being filled with more and more of the knowledge of God's gospel and the knowledge of him in Christ and all that that implies so that that will have its proper work in us that we may walk worthy of him and please him. So to that end, let's pray. Father, we thank you for this word. We thank you that wonder of wonders, through the the death and resurrection of your beloved son, we sinners might have our sin forgiven. We might be counted righteous in your sight. We might have peace with you. We might have joy and love in our fellowship with you and with your people. And we have this glorious hope held out for us, reserved for us, that is coming one day. Not because of anything good in us, but because of everything good in you. We thank you for the work that you have done among us and we pray that you would continue that work more and more. And we ask it in Jesus' name, amen.